0: This morning we are in Mark 1, uh, verses 16 and 20. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start just in verse 14, but we'll catch up. It says, Later on, after John, that's John the baptizer, was arrested... Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat, repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. This is God's word. You may be seated. So if it's your first time joining us, uh, welcome. Uh, We are dedicating this year to deepening our discipleship to Jesus, And we're taking this next season to teach through uh, Mark's gospel. And we're using it, as Christians have done for uh, centuries, as a template to understand in a deeper way who Jesus is. And then what it actually means to be his followers, what it means to be his disciples. Now, last week, we did a bit of an introduction to the book of Mark. And we showed how Mark is a, a book of deep mystery around the person of Jesus. And it's a book that really is calling us further up and further in. You could just read through Mark and you could miss all the ways in which Mark is hinting to us, suggesting to us who Jesus really is. It's almost like Mark keeps pulling back the veil a little bit, or as I've been using the analogy, he keeps shoe dropping, right, while holding the other shoe, But he's calling us further up and further in, in order to truly discover who Jesus is and in order to follow his kingdom mission. And we said that the challenge of Mark is to let this gospel be a guide to learn to stand before this mystery in silence. I think so often, especially in our day and age where everything is so fast-paced, we want to rush We want to just get the information and then jump in. How many of you guys read instructions? You know, you buy something new, maybe it's a piece of tech, right? And you read the instructions. Anybody from cover to cover in Swedish as well? No, of course not. And I'm one of those people that I hate instructions. I hate doing that. I just want to jump right in. And Mark's gospel, if we do that, we will miss the mystery. We will miss the wonder. We will miss what Mark wants to do, I would suggest, which is to take us deep He wants to take us deep into the mystery of God in Jesus, redeeming his creation, triumphing over evil, and restoring his kingdom on earth. Now, last week we ended our study looking at Jesus' message as he preached throughout the region of Galilee. He said, and we read it a moment ago, the time promised by God has come at last. Right. So all the prophets, the Psalms, all of the Old Testament spoke about this time when God would set up his kingdom reign on earth. And Jesus says, it's here. The clock has, you know, it's ticked its last tick. It's time. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, a few things from, for recap from last week. When Jesus went about proclaiming this good news, it's the word in Greek evangelion, he was, in fact, undermining the claims of Caesar. Caesar was, at that time, the king of the Roman Empire and the known world, and Caesar claimed to be a son of God who had brought peace to the world through his reign in the Pax Romana. So this means when we hear Jesus say the kingdom of God is here or near, it means that Caesar's claim is false and doomed. See, the prophets foretold that all kingdoms that have ruled on pain of death with an iron fist, who have taken advantage of the poor, the weak, and marginalized would be dealt with when God's kingdom came. All oppressors, the violent predators would be judged, and the weak, the poor, the outcast, the truly righteous people would finally be vindicated and given justice. They would be given righteous rule and a kingdom of peace. You can see this in the Sermon on the Mount. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about what the prophets foretold, that it's here in his person. Now, as we saw, Jesus went about telling or rather inviting any and all who would hear to turn, that's the word repent, from whatever they had been hoping in. That was, many people at that time were involved in like political um, coups, right? They, uh, the Jews had these men at the time called dagger men. They were zealots. And what they tried to do many times is over. Throw the Roman authorities, and so there were all of these plans for political uprisings and overthrow of the Roman government, and so I would say that it, it's, to some degree, Jesus is calling these people to get rid of these plots to overthrow Rome. Whatever plan, whatever plan of salvation, whatever thing you have been hoping in for redemption and rescue, whatever you have been believing in, turn from that, and Jesus is saying believe in me, or as we talked about last week, the words literally are to give allegiance to Jesus and to join him in his kingdom mission. And last week we talked about what that allegiance was, what it looked like, but this morning as we continue through Mark, I want to talk specifically about how this allegiance plays out in the gospel of Mark. And I would suggest that it plays out in this word called discipleship. So, directly following Jesus' kingdom proclamation, remember the original documents that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so on and so forth, they did not have chapter breaks. They did not have verses or these headings. So, this would just follow almost seamlessly. Jesus says, repent and believe in me. Directly following, Jesus is walking along the shores of Galilee and he sees two young men throwing their nets into the sea and he says to them, come. Come. Follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. And the story continues with almost the exact same scenario happening with two other men, James and his brother John. Jesus calls, they respond, leaving their nets, their father and servants, and follow Jesus. So directly following Jesus' proclamation and invitation, we find him inviting these four men to be his disciples. Now, disciple, uh, if you're not used to this word, this is a very Christian word, right? But in layman terms, it's really the way that the Bible talks about being a student or a pupil, an intern, or I think probably the best word would be apprentice. It's one who learns through experience with a professional, and so I would suggest to you that Mark, in verse 16 through 20, is saying to those who are reading or maybe hearing this story of Jesus for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time this is how you join Jesus' kingdom mission. This is how you give Jesus your allegiance by becoming his disciple. Think about that for a minute. Think about this invitation. Come and follow me. I was thinking about right before this morning, I was thinking about back when I was an 18-year-old. I had just come back from living in Europe for four years. I had missed all my high school social experience, any of this like plan for your life, where do you want to go to school, who do you want to be. My parents never had that conversation with me, and... I love my parents. God bless them. We never had that conversation. So when I turned 18, it was like, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to be? When are you going to move out? Just all these questions. And I I actually had multiple um, panic attacks at that time. And I remember one Sunday morning, my mom and I had this big blow-up fight, and I just remember all the weight of that coming down on me. You know what I wanted so badly I wanted someone to say to me, Come, follow me. I wanted a guide. I needed a guide. And, and my dad is a great dad. He's a great example of many things. My mom is a great mom. She's a great example of many things. But I didn't have a framework for life, I didn't really understand what life was all about. And I longed for something like this Follow me. A guide to life anybody else ever feel that? I don't know what I'm doing. I I just stepped into parenting. I just stepped into marriage. I just stepped into a new career. I am planning the next six years of my life as I go to university. I don't actually know what I'm doing. Could someone tell me how to do this? Could someone tell me what life is about? How to go about finding a way? And I would suggest to you that someone is doing this. Even this morning, the Spirit of Christ today is saying to us, come and follow me. Come and follow me. I will show you the way. I will be the way. I will give you my presence. I w- you know, Psalm 23 always comes to mind. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack no good thing. He leads me through paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me. This is what God offers us in the person of Jesus Christ, a guide for life. Now we in the Western Church we give Jesus many titles we call him the Christ or Messiah we call him Lord we savior king and these are all wonderful and fitting but one that we do not often use for Jesus is rabbi or teacher it's one that the western church seems to have forgotten about but it is one that the gospels use uh, repeatedly, it's one of the gospel's favorite terms for Jesus. And if Jesus was living today, he would be considered a sage. That's what he would be considered. He would be considered this like super wise person who everyone is seeking. Everyone's reading Jesus's New York Times bestseller on how to live your life. That's who he would be. He would be this voice kind of cutting through all the crap of culture, right? Like similar to the way everybody's reading, you know, Brene Brown right now. It's like, oh my gosh, simplifying your life, like life changing, right? Oh my gosh, even so much more so with Jesus. If he was living today, he would be, again, a sage, And this is how the Gospels portray him. But we miss out, unfortunately, in the Western Evangelical Church because we don't refer to Jesus as the teacher, as the rabbi. And it has greatly affected our understanding of who Jesus is and and who he offers to be for us. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus really had two messages, and they went together. It was, the kingdom of God is here. Come and follow me. The kingdom of God is here. Turn. Give your allegiance to me, follow me, or become my disciple. So let's talk about what being a disciple looks like. So the word disciple in Hebrew, which is what Jesus would have spoke, is the word Talmudim, And this is the culture that Jesus was speaking to, right? A Hebrew culture. And there are different ways to translate it, as I said. But disciple is the most common, or apprentice would be the best way to understand it. Now, a Talmudim, or disciple, was not just someone uh, who learned from someone, but was someone who became an apprentice, kind of turned their life over to their teacher. In in that day and age, you know, you didn't follow many teachers or many rabbis. It wasn't the way, you know, we podcast these days. We've got all these different people who've kind of shaped our life for us. You had one rabbi. You had one teacher. And you would seek out your rabbi. They would not seek you out, you would seek them out, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but man, it was brutal. There were three schools uh, as children grew up in Judaism, and at some point in time, you would seek out your rabbi, and if you were good enough, you, you would make the cut. If you were not smart enough, spiritual enough, wise enough, to would be like, okay, sorry, you better go find a different job, right? You better go uh, learn how to fish. You better go learn carpentry or something like that, because you are not going to make it as a scribe or, you know, or a rabbi. So you would seek out a rabbi, and if you made the cut, then the goal was to conform your life to your teacher in order to be like them. And Jesus says as much in Luke 640. He says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So that was the goal, to become like your teacher through copying their way of life. And I think we all know this, but a rabbi wasn't just a teacher but specifically an expert in the law of Moses and the Old Testament. And they would travel from town to village to synagogue with their set of teachings or as it was called their yoke of teachings. And these men they had huge respect in the Jewish community and rabbi actually the term literally means my master and it was this like sign of huge respect my master master of the Torah And the way the rabbi or teacher role worked in Israel was very similar and maybe even borrowed from uh, the Greek philosophers like Plato. A rabbi would be sought out by a student. And as I said, if you were good enough and smart enough, the rabbi would accept you, at which point you would basically turn your whole life over to your rabbi to become their apprentice, their their disciple. You would just be with your rabbi. And so this worked in three movements. The disciple would be with their rabbi. They would live together. They went everywhere together. You'd be listening to the teachings of your rabbi. You'd be watching them, you know, watching the way that they move their hands, watching their posture with people, everything about them, just to take in their person, their way of life, their way of doing things. The second move would be to become like your rabbi. So you know how this is, right? When you spend time, you ever have a friend growing up where they just had such a contagious personality that even your parents would be like, you've been hanging out with Matt. You've been hanging out with Matt, and I can tell because now you're saying all the things that Matt does. Hudson does this. Hudson's he, our middle son. He's so funny. He just kind of takes on personalities. He picks up on things. Ugh couple weeks ago we're sitting at the breakfast table and he just turns to Judah and he goes hey Judah dad laughs like this (gasps) 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 like no I don't just getting so irked by it I totally do and he's like picked up on it and mocks me now for it Um, but he has this way of picking up on people's personalities and little ticks and things like that but in a sense this is what it was this is what it was to be a Talmudim, a student, was a disciple, was to pick up on those things and to imitate those things, and not in order to just copy, but in order to make it your own. The disciple would become like their rabbi, fully adopt the rabbi's way of life, the rabbi's rhythm and practices, imitate the voice, the body language, the dress, the whole thing. It was taking on the identity of your rabbi. And we... There's all sorts of examples in this in monoculture. You guys know how much I love Bob Dylan. And for some reason, every time I get up here to give like a metaphor, or analogy, Bob comes to mind. I don't know why, but he does. But I'll never forget, I was reading, I think it was after he had won the Nobel Peace Prize. And there was an article. And some people were criticizing Dylan for um, one of the songs that he wrote. They said, oh, you ripped this off. You know, this is an old folk song. And he just said, you don't understand the folk tradition. That is all that folk is. Nothing is really original in folk. It's all borrowed. And, and so he, he has this example. He said, you know, if you had listened and played Robert Johnson's Better Come, Better Come Knockin' on My Door. I can't remember the song. He said, but if you had listened and played this song as many times as I had, you would have written A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. And if you compare the two, they are very similar. But I would say that that is what apprenticeship looks like. That's kind of the idea of discipleship. It's not a carbon copy, but the idea is to assimilate in order to make something your own to where it's a genuine transfer of that person and of their principles. But it's you at the same time. It is authentic. So you would be with your rabbi. You would become like your rabbi. And lastly, the disciple would do what their rabbi did. Fully assimilate his life in person. So being a disciple ultimately to go with, meant to go with your rabbi in an attitude of study, obedience, and imitation. So three goals of discipleship or apprenticeship. Be with your rabbi. Become like your rabbi. Do what your rabbi does. Just raise of hands. When you became a Christian or a Jesus follower, did anybody tell you anything like this? Hey, here's the goal. You're going to be with Jesus in order to become like Jesus in order to do what he did. Usually the the idea is, hey, just go tell everybody else. Sometimes it's like, just go tell everybody else that unless they repent, they're going to hell. But they can be forgiven and go to heaven. Just get that message out there, right? And that's what many of us are given. Rather, the offer in scripture is come and follow me come and follow me. Come be with me. Learn my way in order to be like me. And this is what we find in Scripture. Jesus is Lord. He is Savior. He is the Almighty God who has stepped down out of eternity, taken on flesh, redeemed us by his life, his death, his resurrection. But we cannot miss the fact that Jesus is also rabbi. He is also teacher. And we see this from the beginning. Many of us have, unfortunately, adopted a Christianity where God is the one that is doing all the work. And what it means to become a Christian is that you get zapped by God in order to be like him or in order to kind of become a Christian, become part of the kingdom of God. But what we see from Genesis, right out the gate, is apprenticeship. God, after creating Adam and Eve, what does he do to them? He says, you rule over the earth for me. You take this garden kingdom and spread it to the ends of the earth. He invites humanity into his work of creation and dominion into culture making and I would suggest to you nothing has changed. When we come into the family of God, we step right back into that role of Adam and Eve to become apprentices of God in order to learn God's Person, his way in order to join him in his work. I mean, we, we use those same terms, right? The, to join the kingdom of God. To be co-laborers with God. And so Jesus is our rabbi, our teacher, in order to teach us, walk with us, Disciple us in this way. Now, here in our passage, as I already mentioned, Mark mentions the call to Jesus' disciples as a way to invite us into the story. And so I think the question that Mark is asking us, and we kind of want to explore this morning, is will we respond to Jesus' message and offer? Will we turn from whatever has been a priority in our life, whatever has taken focus, whatever we have previously thought life was about, whatever we had previously hoped in to bring us joy or peace, satisfaction, that will turn from that and will give all of that hope, longing, expectation to Jesus that will put it on him and we will become his disciples. Mark, later on in his gospel, we'll get there in a year or so. (laughs) Uh, Mark uses, again, a literary device to engage the reader, and in this passage, he distinguishes the disciples from the crowd. Jesus calls the disciples and the crowd, it says to himself, and talks about the cost of discipleship, and this is really important for us to talk about this morning. And again, Mark is doing this to get us to ask, who am I? Am I among the disciples, the students? Am I an apprentice of Jesus? Or am I just a face in the crowd? Am I just an observer? And many of us, we might think, well, I'm a Christian. You know, that's what I am. You know, maybe I'm not, you know, disciples a little hardcore, it's a little intense. There are a lot of fundamentalists and radicals in the world today. You know, I'm just a Christian, right? Do you know that the Bible only uses the term Christian three times? And it's actually a derogatory term when it's used. But. The New Testament uses the word disciple 269 times to define Jesus' followers. Just let that settle in. In other words, you cannot be a real Christian without being a disciple, without being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. But this is so typical of our American individualist culture, right? We see Jesus as an option among many. And if that fits us, if we, you know, Jesus' ideals kind of fit with who we want to be or what we think life is about, then we'll adopt those. If anything that Jesus says comes in conflict with <clears throat> our message of freedom or being our true self, being unique, authentic, then we reject it. And all the time, I, I was just talking to somebody the other day, Buddhist, Catholic, Hindu. It's like, okay. All right, I have no idea what that means. You tell me what that means, you know? But basically, just to say, Sonoma County, we're not religious, we're spiritual. And we just pick from the smorgasbord of spirituality, right? And just kind of make a plate, a big plate, of all the things that we like. I'm on a tangent. I'm gonna get back to my notes. I would say what we are doing... As a culture, what we're doing as the church is that we are lessening Jesus' call and demand. And as we do that, we lessen the potency of the power of what Jesus wants to do in our lives. That he wants to radically transform our person to be like his person. So Jesus, in this passage, he says, If anyone would come after me, he or she must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever would save their life will, in fact, lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and the good news sake, the good news of the kingdom of God, will save it. For what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? In other words... Discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus is the only real way to follow Jesus. Every other way, every lesser way is untrue and will not lead to life that Jesus describes in in many of his teachings, either in this life or the life to come. Now, maybe for some of you, the idea of a discipline or discipleship, or apprenticeship, whatever you call it, has the smell of constraint and losing your freedom. And we're living in a cultural moment that tells us that our freedom is the most important thing about us. That it's the most important thing about life, your freedom to choose, to express yourself, to define yourself, To seek your best interest as long as you don't hurt someone else. Even the freedom to end your own life. That's what we're being told. Freedom without restraint, really. And I would say freedom is important to being human, but that is not all there is to being human. So the question I think that we need to ask ourselves is, is the life that I am living or the narrative that I'm following giving me true freedom? Is it giving me a freedom that also has a meaning and purpose, quality and fullness? Or rather, is it a so-called freedom? that's actually a slave master masquerading as a liberator. Mark Sayers, in his book, Reappearing Church, he said very insightfully, our culture is drowning in freedoms but thirsting for meaning. you find that? We've got all the freedom in the world. Nobody has any idea where they're going. No defined path. Progress for the sake of progress. Where are we going? Now, when Jesus calls us to be his disciples, he says that there is a cost involved. We must take up our cross and follow him, but he promises in doing so, we will truly live. And in another portion of scripture, one of my favorite, Jesus tells us to take on his yoke, and that is his way of life, his teaching, his person, his mission. And he says in doing so, we will find rest for our souls. Now, Jesus, as your rabbi and king He will restrict your freedom. Yes, you will have to give things up in order to follow Jesus. But I would say this, these are the freedoms that destroy you. These are the freedoms that destroy others. These are freedoms that make the world a miserable place. And in exchange, Jesus offers you true freedom and ultimate meaning. And here's the truth. In becoming a disciple of anyone or anything, anything which all of us are, right? Every one of us are subscribing to some narrative of the good life. In doing so, we lose and restrict our freedoms. The question is, will we lose the right freedoms? And will we find true meaning and purpose in that discipleship? Dylan, you gotta serve somebody, Right? So here's the call of Jesus this morning. Be with me, become like me, in order to do what I have done. And that's it, that's the program. Whether you're brand new to following Jesus or you've been doing it your whole life, it's very simple. Be with me, become like me, do what I did. So let's talk about that. So being with Jesus. (sighs) It's interesting to me that this is a piece of Christianity that we have lost. And this might be because of our scientific, rational culture that we live in, where you know, we don't believe in anything that is mystical or spiritual. But the offer of Christianity is that we get the actual presence of Jesus Christ the resurrected Lord. And that this is what Jesus talked about with his disciples before he suffered, there in the upper room, that he kept elaborating on his presence that would be with them, that would teach them all truth, that would abide with them, that would comfort them. And I would say that this is what Jesus offers every single one of us. He offers us his presence. To be with us, back like I was saying with Psalm 23, to walk the difficulties of this life, to give us wisdom, to give us protection, to give us his peace when nothing is peaceful around us. And so an awareness and connection to Jesus the person is, is what I'm talking about here. Being with Jesus. And I would say that this is probably the grandest offer of Christianity is that we get Jesus, we get to be with him. And this has been called many things in Christianity. Some call it quiet time, devotionals, whatever you call it. It's simply practicing time alone with Jesus. Now, in our radically distracted technological culture, this is difficult for us. It means that you will have to unplug. It means that you will probably have to find some solitude, some solitary place in order to do this. Now, that might be somewhere in your house. If you have a big enough house, you can find this. It might be Taylor Mountain. It might be going out to the coast. It might be something like that. It might be something even more simple. But it's simply practicing time alone with Jesus. Maybe it's in your car and it's just with the radio off with your phone on silent as you're commuting. Maybe it's 10 minutes right before you go into work that you're doing this. You're practicing time alone with Jesus. You're thinking about his person. You're talking to him as a real person. Like, anybody have... You that have kids, you know about this. We are trying to teach our children not to talk to God like robots, but to talk to him like a real person, right? And this is a difficult thing even for us as adults. Dear God, thank you for this day. I pray that I don't get hurt at work. It's like, where do you work? Like, Why do we pray that every day? But we talk to him like robots, rather than practicing talking to him as a friend, as a confidant, a counselor, as our guide. A friend who journeys the way of life with us. Now, I personally have been doing this. I've been, this has been um, probably the last year and a half of my life now, just really trying to practice time alone with Jesus like this. And lately, I've been walking in the graveyard by my house. Before I start work, I know it's weird. But it's like, it's so serene. And right now, moss is on all the trees. It's so green. There's these red-breasted robins that are just incredible to watch. And I just get to sit there as the sun warms me up and I just get to look at creation. I get to think about all of God's artistic beauty, wonder, and I get to think, the birds of the air. They do not store into barns. They do not gather. God, you take care of every one of them. How much more will you take care of me? These little flowers that are growing up out of the rocks, there they are, they're beautiful. And yet, and yet, they'll be dead in a month. God will take care of me. And I get to have that moment with the Lord. And this is absolutely vital to our spiritual development that we be with Jesus and that we grow to know him as a person and as our friend as our our guide that journeys the way with us and so I would just suggest to you find time to just be with Jesus talking to him while on a walk sitting with him on your porch Bringing him into your pains and your struggles. Bringing him into your celebrations and victories. Bringing his presence into the routine of your daily life. And whether you are, or wherever you are, and whatever you are doing, to practice his presence. To think about his person. Think about his posture. Mike has done such a good job of this in in his teachings, talking about the tone of voice in which Jesus spoke to people in the Gospels, his posture with people. Think about that as being towards you. His heart towards you. Cultivate that spirit of his presence to walk with him, to talk with him, just to be with him. Now, common practices for doing this include silence and solitude. Prayer, fasting, Sabbath, and studying of Scripture. I I just recommend any of those to just carve out this time to be with Jesus. It's so important for us. The second thing is we become like Jesus as we spend time with him. We take on his person. Paul has this thing where he says, We who with unveiled face... And there's too much there to unpack, but he says we we get to behold the glory of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, and as we do that, we are transformed to behold that image of Jesus. And that's the idea, the more time you spend gazing upon the wonder of who Jesus is, his posture, his tone of voice, his love, his grace, his mercy, his truth, his justice, it will transform your person. And then you become like Jesus. So that's the next step, right? Become like Jesus. Practice the way of Jesus. And I say this all the time. You guys are probably sick of me saying it, but I will say it till they bury me in the ground. The Sermon on the Mount is the most important teaching of Jesus for disciples. You got to have it, you got to read it, you got to know it, you got to practice it. Like, that's it. I would just highly recommend if you haven't done it in a long time, read the Sermon on the Mount. Make that the goal of the next month. You're just going to consume it. You're going to think deeply about what he's talking about here because this is the way of Jesus. This is the rhythms of his life. These are the things that he prioritized. This was Jesus' rule of life. And he invites us into it to practice this rule of life with him. He even says so in his sermon at one point in time, and these are kind of bookends to the sermon. Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments that he's just taught and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So if you're like, oh, practicing the way of Jesus doesn't matter, guess what? End of the line. Least in the kingdom of God. Like, you don't get it. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to, like, using hyperbole to get us, like, oh, yeah, this is important. Listen up. Like, we're supposed to be doing this. It's crazy, and this is just just a short tangent, but there are so many Bible scholars and commentators who have actually taken the Sermon on the Mount and said, this is not something to be practiced by Christians. This is something that will happen in the millennial reign. This is not for this world. This is actually what will happen in the kingdom of God. And it's like, did you even read the sermon? Like, he says it. Like, you gotta do it. You gotta practice it. Sorry. I'm back. Okay. And then, as Jesus brings the sermon to a close, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them or practices them will be like a wise person who built their house on the rock. So Jesus' sermon, he's saying, is not just to be heard or learned like we often do in modern school or education. It's to be practiced. It's to be applied. It's to be lived out. And so part of this is we have to understand that this is not... When I say, you know, just do it, it's not, you know, oh, if you do these things, then you will be great. This is how we train to be like Jesus by practicing the Sermon on the Mount. It's the gymnasium for Christians. It's like what Paul says. He tells Timothy to train for godliness. It's how we grow in Jesus-like character by practicing his way of life. And what is that? Well, let me just boil it down, just a few highlights of the Sermon on the Mount. We practice forgiveness. That we practice non-retaliation. Now, we live in a a cultural moment that says you get your justice. You get it for yourself because no one else is gonna help you. You get that. You go after that. And Jesus says, okay, justice, yes, but non-retaliation non-retaliation, and so often what we want to do in justice is we want to harm someone, we want to repay them for what they have done to us. That is not justice. Jesus calls for non-retaliatory justice. He calls for meekness or humility, peacefulness, mercy, sincerity, purity, faithfulness, fasting, prayer, Simplicity. Simplicity. In a cultural moment, again, says, oh, there are so many things that you should buy and that you should be and do. Jesus says, no, live a simple life of godliness by following me. Simplicity. Love of God, love of neighbor, love of enemy. Practicing grace, finding our identity in Jesus and his mission, practicing the spiritual disciplines, finding your place in a community of Jesus followers. This is what this sermon is really about. And we have to understand this. Dallas Willard said it very well. He says, Jesus does not call us to do what he did, but to be as he was, permeated with love. Then the doing of what he did and said becomes the natural expression of who we are in him. Right, again, it's about training so that we actually assimilate this character of Jesus. And that's the idea of apprenticeship, right? To practice the way of Jesus so that it becomes an actual part of who we are, that we do it by second nature, And that's Paul's vision when he he writes in the epistles as well, that walking in the Spirit would just become normative for the community of Jesus' people. We love and we forgive because that's the kind of people that we are. So we be with Jesus, we become like Jesus in order to do what he did. And I'm almost done. Mark 3, 13 through 15, it says, And he, Jesus, went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, or that's the sent ones, so that they might be with him. There it is again. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, it's interesting to note that this is exactly what Jesus was described as doing in Mark 1 21 through 28. We'll get there next week. He's announcing the kingdom of God, he's casting out demons. And it's the idea that I mentioned before. Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but when they are fully trained, they'll be like their teacher. So, Jesus has been declaring the kingdom of God. showing the power of the kingdom of God over the demonic realm. And then he says, all right, apprentices, you're going to go do the same. Preach the kingdom, cast out demons. So disciples are called to do what Jesus did. They're called to do what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? I would say in a nutshell, Jesus alerted people to the presence of the kingdom of God with his words and his deeds. We could even simplify it as saying, as we are with Jesus, and he gives us his presence, that we give then that same presence to the world. The presence that he gives us, that we then take that same posture and give it to our neighbor. We give it to the one that is struggling, the one who... uh, Cannot keep up with the goals and achievements of our culture, the one who is failing at life, that we turn around and we give that same presence to them. We alert people to the reign of God in our words and our deeds. And Jesus did that. He went around, he preached the gospel, he taught this way of the kingdom. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He did justice. He ate and drank with those who were very far from God. People said, those people can never be saved. Those people shouldn't even be near those who are safe and saved. And Jesus went right after them and ate and drank associated with them. Jesus prayed and he prophesied. Jesus stood up against religious hypocrisy and pride and Jesus spoke truth to political power and he calls us to do the same as his followers, to preach the gospel, to teach the way of Jesus, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, which for us it's like, whoa, right? It's all over church history. To do justice, to eat and drink with those who are far from God, to pray and prophesy, to stand up against religious hypocrisy and pride, to speak truth to political power. That's what Jesus did. He alerted people to the power and presence of the kingdom of God everywhere he went, and he invites us as his disciples, as his apprentices, to join him in this kingdom mission. So, if you're a Christian this morning, your goal, my goal, is to learn how to do all that. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what he did. But it's a lifelong journey goal, a lifelong journey, and it takes our whole person. It's a slow work in a sense that God does, just over over a lifetime, And and it takes just all of life's experiences, and sometimes we want to rush the process. But I do not think that we will be able, especially to do what Mark is asking us to do, We won't be able to truly assimilate his person and his character if we try to rush through this. Anybody ever try to, you know, rush through a trial that you're going through? You can't do it. You just can't. It's just, like, it's set out, and when it's over, it's over, right? And in, in so many ways, this is just how life works, You can't rush the process. You can't speed it up. So then give way to the process. And quoting a much, much wiser person than myself, trust in the slow work of God. He knows what he's doing. Submit to the process of being with Jesus, of becoming like Jesus in order to do what he did. And so this is our life goal, right? We don't have to rush it. It's what we're all about for the rest of our lives. To live as an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. And I would say as we practice being with Jesus, like this gospel talks about, the more will be revealed to us about the person and majesty of Jesus. You'll never get bored. You can't. He's unfathomable. He is greater than the greatest his majesty is beyond comprehension. His ways, so far beyond our ways. And the more we practice being with Him, the more will be revealed to us. And this will increase our transformation and our imitation of Jesus. As I said, this is clearly seen in the Gospel of Mark. As the disciples spend time with Jesus, more and more the person of Jesus, who he really is in all of his majesty and divinity, is revealed to them. And I pray that the Lord will do the same for us. Now, in closing, Jesus' invitation is to every one of us this morning to follow him. And whether this is the first time you're hearing it or it's an echo of a call you heard long ago, be with him, become like him, do what he did. Now, let me just say, One last thing in closing. Jesus is not like any other rabbi or teacher. And this is something we must know. Let me just highlight that in a few ways. First of all, Jesus is the rabbi who calls us by grace, not by works. And what we mean by that is not by worthiness. Interesting, I I mentioned this a little bit ago, but a rabbi would be sought out, right? This was the tradition, a rabbi would be sought out by a student. Please, take me. Accept me into your school. Let me be part of your inner circle. But with Jesus, he seeks. He seeks you. He seeks me. He seeks anybody. Which is radical. Here, here is a radical part of Christianity. It treats everyone the same. In our culture, especially now, with a lot of talk about gender, we want to say, oh, well, this person is unique and different. And, well, they might have a, a struggle that we don't understand, but I will tell you what, Jesus treats everybody exactly the same. He does not prefer anyone. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He seeks out, and it's not because people are special, unique, great, or holy, but because he is good because he is the good shepherd and he knows, he knows that we are lost. He knows that we are confused. He even knows, though we hide it and deny it, that we are afraid. We are afraid. We're afraid of life. We're afraid of circumstances. We're afraid of death. And Jesus says, come, follow me. Give your allegiance to me and I will give you rest. Other rabbis were sought out, but not Jesus. He is the one seeking, and he is the one calling. Also, Jesus is the rabbi who will make us become like him because he gives us his Holy Spirit. And this is absolutely vital that we understand this. It's not just that we, like, adapt the way of Jesus and work really hard. No, it is his Spirit at work in us that helps us comprehend these truths, that softens our heart, that empowers us to live this life of godliness, to forgive when we cannot. We say, Holy Spirit, you must forgive for me. You must work through me. I cannot, Lord, in my own strength. Teach me, empower me, fill in the blank. His Spirit does that for us. He is the rabbi who brings us into his kingdom mission. There is this false idea that goes around in the church that God doesn't share glory with anybody because God is the greatest. It's bullcrap. From the very start of Genesis, God says, Adam and Eve, I would like you to share glory. In my kingdom reign in glory. And Peter tells us that we will be partakers of the divine nature. What God does say is that I will not share my glory with graven images and false gods. I alone am the Lord. He invites us into his kingdom mission. What a privilege. He gives us meaning. He gives us infinite purpose. He invites us in, and then he rewards us for it. I mean, this is like I, <laughs> this is like me giving Judah allowance and then he buying me a birthday present. You know, it's just like, it's all rigged. It's all God's money. It's all God's commerce. It's all God's glory and goodness. And it's because he's good. But even more than all of this, let me say this. I'm almost done. Jesus is the rabbi who is the Christ, the anointed one of God. He is the king. He is the savior who forgives us of our sin, who cleanses us, who makes us whole, who restores and heals us. He is our priest, the mediator between God and mankind. Oh, and he is our rabbi who is God in the flesh, our rabbi who is with us who has gone before us and traversed the road ahead of us and this is why we call him the way. He has already gone before us and like the writer of Hebrews says, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. We can follow him. He knows the way. So I encourage you, exhort you, follow Jesus for the rest of your life as a disciple in those simple ways of being with him, becoming like him and doing what he did for the rest of your life. If you are lost on how to do that, I would highly recommend uh, a website called practicingtheway.org. And these are just very simple ways, just a great way to practice silence or some suggestions for solitude, some suggestions for Sabbath, just great ways that we can practice the way of Jesus, being with him, becoming like him, doing what he did. And this is what it means to believe in Jesus, to give him our allegiance, to respond to his kingdom announcement. It it means to be his disciple. And Dallas Willard says this. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, Steadily, slowly, learning from Him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, I pray that even now, Lord, as this call, this exhortation has gone out, this call of Jesus 2,000 years later has been repeated, offered again. Lord, like in this gospel, would we have ears to hear? Would we not put up excuses in our objections our dishonest doubts. But would we allow these words and this offer to just sink in? Would we ask ourselves honestly, are we, following? are we following Jesus? Is our life an apprenticeship of Jesus Christ or is it an apprenticeship of the American dream? Is it an apprenticeship of some political party Is it an apprenticeship of some philosophical ideal? Would we, Holy Spirit, would you examine our hearts? Are we being with Jesus? Are we becoming like him? Can we say, I'm not what I was? When we walk the city, and interact with people, are they experiencing the reign of God through our lives? And Lord, I confess that is not 100% true of me. And so I pray that it would be even more. I pray that for all of us, that we would respond with a renewed vigor and passion. Be with you, to know you, to know your love for us, and Lord, to love you in return, to become like you, and Lord, to see our city filled with your presence. Holy Spirit, take us where we cannot possibly go ourselves. And we thank you this morning, Lord, that we have this table that brings us back to that night when you told us that you were going to lay your life down for us and that this cup is a picture of your blood that would be shed in order to wash us from our wrongdoing from our guilt, from our rebellion, from our brokenness. And that this bread symbolized your body that would be broken in our place. You would be our substitute. And so, Lord, would we take it again this morning with gratitude, remembering what you have done for us, what you offer us. And, Lord, as we leave this place, would we take up your offer to follow you And now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in our midst, Lord. Give us words of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Give us vision, prayers of blessing, exhortation and encouragement over one. Move in our midst. Do your will in your body this morning, we pray, as we respond to you in worship.